Dr. Craig, always good to see you. And you've got a couple of things going on. One is a course at Houston Baptist University that people can actually audit, and it's on the moral argument, May 17th through 21st. Well, I'm team teaching this course with Professor David Baggett, the author of the book, Good God, and probably the most prolific author on the moral argument for the existence of God today. I'll be teaching the first week of the class online, and then David will be teaching the second week of the class with students actually in the classroom as well as online. And folks can take this class online, they can audit it, and have the benefit of uh, both me and David as we talk about the moral argument for the existence of God. I was just working on my lectures this morning for this, and I'm really looking forward to it because although I've presented the moral argument in debates and in articles, I've never actually taught a whole course on the subject. And so I'm very eager to um, get into this with the students in more depth. I really recommend that our viewers and our listeners audit this class. It's just going to be terrific. And you can go to Houston Baptist University's website and there'll be plenty of uh, information there on how to audit that. Uh, second of all, Bill, how's the writing going? I suppose you're in there every day in your office writing oh, your philosophical theology. I am, Kevin. That's very true. With the pandemic, uh, I'm just working from morning until evening uh, on this systematic philosophical theology. And the section that I'm on now is the doctrine of God, which is at the very heart of Christian theology. And I am going through the attributes of God with a view toward determining the coherence of theism. So I've written up a section on God's necessary existence, defending that, and then a section on divine aseity, which as you know, I'm an ardent defender of. And now I'm working on a section on divine simplicity, and there is a vast literature on this subject which needs to be mastered. And so I am still reading in this area, but soon I think I'll begin writing uh, that section as well. And I'm more critical of the doctrine of divine simplicity. I think that here, mainstream Christian theology, frankly, has been seriously derouted through the influence of ancient Greek Neoplatonism, which thought of the ultimate reality as a kind of undifferentiated one, without distinctions, without properties, and so forth. And it's it's painful for me to see how Christian theology has been led astray by this philosophical view. You know, Bill, I saw uh, a discussion on Facebook. People were discussing the fact that you're busy writing this, so many of them said, I can't wait, you know, oh. in all caps, but they may have to wait a while <laughs> for, for you to get it all written. Yes, I think at least five years, if not longer, because I don't want to release the early volumes before the later ones are finished, because at the end, you'll always want to go back and revise. Sure. So it'll be a while. Bill, we're going to take a look at this article here from Christianity Today. Sadly, it's about the fall of RZIM, Ravi Zacharias ministry. And one thing just right off the bat, Bill, is that Christianity Today, 
the author here, is very sympathetic about the ministry of apologetics, about apologetics, and so on. I get the impression that that's not always been the case with Christianity today, uh, mm. with the editing staff, that they've always maybe leaned, well, I, I don't want to say postmodern, but, but maybe they haven't been that uh, sympathetic to apologetics. I don't know if you've ever gotten that. Well, this author at any rate, uh, Justin Bailey is a pastor uh, whom they uh, tapped for this article. And he seems very sympathetic to the importance of apologetics, but wants to draw some lessons from the demise of Ravi Zacharias and RZIM. Sure. He talks about how this whole thing has been devastating. We get down to about the third paragraph. He says, as a pastor professor who cares about the revitalization of apologetics for the sake of the gospel, the RZIM story sobers me a great deal as I look to the future of the broader movement. There's no question that Ravi's depravity has irreparably damaged his legacy and the ministry that is changing its name and retiring from apologetics. Uh, that was kind of sad to hear. Bill. Yes, and I think that's very true. Uh, there's no doubt at all that Robbie's legacy has been destroyed and the ministry ruined. I picked up on what I thought was a significant expression in his article. He said that Robbie had been insulated from accountability by an inner circle, overwhelmed in part by his charisma and in part by outright intimidation. And I think that the investigation into this situation has really only begun. I think what merits further investigation, Kevin, is the complicity of the board members and the family members. RZIM was shot through with nepotism and family members were in positions of leadership. And I think it bears investigation the degree to which uh, family members and board members may have uh, worked to not only insulate him from accountability, but to cover up these incidents when they began to come out. He talks about um, that he's picked up on detractors of what he calls traditional apologetic practice. And, uh, Bill, I don't know exactly what what that would be. I mean, it, there's the biblical practice of First Peter 3.15, Acts 17, yeah. of giving a reason for the hope that is within you, the defense of the faith. What is he saying? Just the way that we've been doing this, the sage on the stage right. uh, is putting people in a position to, to be too vulnerable without accountability? Well, I think it's... It's odd to me that he thinks that the Christian apologist is the sage on the stage. Um, That suggests that apologetics is mainly about public speaking and rhetorical matters, whereas I'm more concerned with what we call the the schnook in the book, uh, (laughs) not the sage on the stage. It's those who are involved in a serious life of Christian scholarship and defense and articulation of a Christian world and life view. And these uh, popular apologists, these fellows on the stage, then will use this work in bringing it down to 
the level of the man in the pew or the man in the street. But I, I do not think that Christian apologetics is primarily about the sage on the stage. The final paragraph on page one, he says that some people want to turn away from an over-reliance on rationality toward more revelational, relational, or imaginative resources. And then others have advocated for approaches characterized by cruciform virtue, humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Well, Bill, I, again, I've we've always said that on this podcast, that sure. you give with gentleness and respect, that's how you give yes. your answer. And also this revelational, relational, imaginative resources. There's some of that postmodernism maybe coming in uh, or that flavor coming in and saying, you, you know, you don't need the hardcore factual type stuff. You need to be more relational. And that is certainly not the result of Ravi Zacharias's demise. That movement within contemporary Christianity preceded his demise by years and years and years. Uh, So-called progressives in uh, Christianity have long been dissing traditional rational apologetics in favor of just sharing your narrative and having a more relational approach. So I think that he exaggerates the degree to which that kind of more relational emphasis has anything to do with Ravi's demise. First paragraph on page two here, and, and this is rather anecdotal, but he says that there are growing misgivings about the discipline of apologetics, especially among younger evangelicals. Not long ago, he says, I taught a class on apologetics at an evangelical seminary and was surprised by the number of students who sought an apology for the class. My students had some sharp questions. Isn't it impossible to argue someone into faith? Isn't apologetics only effective for the already convinced? Isn't apologetics a poor substitute for relational evangelism and discipleship? I think that he really misanalyzes the situation if he thinks that that emphasis or skepticism about apologetics is the result of RCIM's demise. Uh, there has long been a anti-intellectual current within evangelicalism that sees no need for apologetics, and we've been struggling against that for years. So I, I think that the degree to which the demise of RZIM has inhibited traditional apologetics is really exaggerated. The only evidence he gives for this is this anecdote about a class that he taught some time ago at an evangelical seminary, and there's no evidence at all to suggest that those students' uh, skepticism about apologetics had anything to do with Ravi's demise or the demise of any other uh, Christian leaders. Yeah. And, and, Bill, you and I have talked about how impressed we are that so many really young people are electrified oh. by uh, uh, apologetics and, and digging into all the areas that apologetics touches. So uh, boy, you look around YouTube and Reddit and some things like that, you see some really young people who really love apologetics. Yes. yes. And the spiritual benefits of that renaissance in apologetics has been remarkable. As you put it, Kevin, for many of these uh, younger folks, 
It's not simply a reformation of their minds, but it has been an, an electrifying experience spiritually that has drawn them closer to God and made their worship of God more profound and more meaningful. And they're more excited about evangelism than they were before they had this training in apologetics. So one of the biggest surprises to me um, in starting this ministry, Reasonable Faith, has been the degree to which it impacts people, not just intellectually, but spiritually as well. He offers four things that he thinks will aid the future of apologetics. Number one, he says, demonstrate a commitment to truth even when the consequences hurt. Bill, he's talking about, boy, I tell you, that's the real state of the country right now. The mood of the country is all this apologizing. We're sorry. At the same time, he's saying we need to be, what I guess he's saying we need to be very transparent. And when somebody falls, you don't protect them. Yeah. You say, okay, you admit it and repent. Right. And that's the way I understood him that you don't try to cover up your mistakes, but you own up to them. And if necessary, you confess and make restitution and and try to go on, uh, but you do not make excuses or cover up. Number two, he says, distinguish, but don't divide the message from the messenger. Because we've heard, hey, despite the flaws of Ravi Zacharias or anyone else, it's the message that counts. And he says, yeah, but there, what? There are some uh, interrelations between the two. It's, right. I think it's, it's clear that we cannot reject the message simply because of the fallibility of the messenger. That's obviously true. Uh, that would be an ad hominem sort of fallacy, wouldn't it? But nevertheless, as public spokesmen for Christ, we need to strive to live lives of integrity where the truth of our message is lived out in our personal lives. And that's certainly an important emphasis. Yeah. The young people say represent. You have to represent well. That's still a clarion call, I'm sure, Bill. Yes. Mm -hmm. Number three, he says, reclaim faith as a community project rather than an individual achievement. Long story short, Bill, on this is that it's easy for a speaker like Ravi Zacharias, who travels constantly speaking, to just be out with no accountability, yes. kind of uh, perhaps isolated. And that's one aspect of this. And also that there's no substitute, there's no virtual or YouTube apologist substitute for someone in your community who you can go to. I guess we're talking about the church there, Bill. Exactly. He's talking about the local church. And one of the things that he noticed about Ravi was that he was not a member of a local church because he traveled. And I'm so grateful that Jan and I have chosen to be involved in Johnson Ferry Baptist Church as our local church, and that both of us are trying to exercise our spiritual gifts in the context of the local church. I, I believe strongly, Kevin, in the local church and the importance of participating in it. And so my Defenders uh, class and podcast originated as my Sunday school class 
that I teach every Sunday at JFBC. Um, and I'm committed, uh, despite the traveling that I do, to being in church every Sunday as much as I can, uh, rather than being away on a Sunday morning. I want to be there worshiping with brothers and sisters in the local body and to be teaching in my Sunday school class. Yeah, I certainly don't want people to hear that one should not aspire to, to travel and speak and have a lot of speaking engagements just to beware of the pitfalls. And I guess it's just common sense, Bill. Yes, it is. You need to have the support and the accountability that's provided by a local body of believers who know you personally and whom you know on a personal level. And so I would encourage any Christian apologist to be uh, deeply involved in his local church, in its ministries, and exercising his spiritual gift in that context. Yeah, I like this highlighted in blue here from A.J. Swoboda. He says, order your pizzas and your books online, but don't take your deepest doubts and questions there. Bring them to us, God's people on the ground. Please don't replace us with some YouTuber. Question the assumption that a PhD is the same as being wise or the assumption that most viewed or viral has anything to do with veracity. (laughs) I have to tell you, Kevin, I have been really taken aback sometime at people who send me Facebook messages asking deeply personal questions uh, about their lives that they're struggling with. Hmm. And I typically say to them, I'm a philosopher, not a pastoral counselor. You need to go to your local pastor or someone in your local church and get counseling about this because just talking to someone online isn't going to help you to overcome these really deep personal problems that many people struggle with. Sure. I've learned a lot on YouTube, Bill. I mean, I love to go there, but I agree that uh, it's it's only supplemental. It's not, uh, it doesn't need to be your entire discipleship uh, uh, because that just kind of bypasses the community and the people who are right there next to you and available yes. in, in the local church and so on. The fourth and final thing he says, Bill, and he mentions you here, he distinguishes between uppercase and lowercase apologists. And uh, I think I know what he's talking about. The uppercase apologists come equipped with answers and philosophical proofs and compelling insights into difficult questions. Though sometimes despised, they play an important role in the wider world and often clear the road of intellectual barriers so that a person can move further along in their faith and faith exploration, for example, I'm thankful for the ministry of people like William Lane Craig, who has served the church in this space for years. So, Bill, you're um, you're one of the uppercase apologists yeah. here. Uh, and I take it by that he means someone who is better known and widely influential, as opposed to folks who are working hard in the local church, teaching a Bible study or a Sunday school class or a youth group. And uh, certainly, I think we need to support both sorts of outreach. Sure. He says that there are lowercase 
and that is the people who are right there in your com- community. God hasn't given them a big platform. But Bill, I tell you, God has given you a, this big platform, and that's I know that's got to uh, perhaps keep you up at night <laughs> sometimes. Well, I liked what Justin had to say uh, near the end of his article. He said, uppercase practitioners need prayer and accountability. They need friends and colleagues who know them well enough not to be impressed by them. I like that. He says, individual apologists must be rooted in and under the authority of local congregations, precisely because apologetics and faith are essentially communal endeavors. And I certainly uh, second those sentiments. Final thoughts, Bill, on this article as we wrap up today. Well, he says we should also seek to be lowercase apologists who are engaged in everyday conversations. Hmm. He says we seek to bring the questions, hopes, and griefs of our neighbors together with our own before the Savior who calls us to follow him. And I want to echo again what Justin says there. Ultimately, it's going to be the everyday lay local lowercase apologist who is sharing his faith and winning people to Christ that is going to bring people to a knowledge of Christ. And so he's absolutely right in saying it's not enough just to have the sage on the stage or the uppercase apologist or the schnook in the book. You've got to have these everyday people who are trained and ready to give an answer for the faith that is in them. Mm -hmm. 